This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Seven by Edwidge Dantica, which was published in The New Yorker in October of 2001. He charged at her and wrapped both of his arms around her, and as he held her, she felt her feet leave the ground. It was when he put her back down that she finally believed that she was somewhere else, on another soil, in another country. The story was chosen by Juno Diaz, who is the author of two story collections and the novel The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wow, which won the Pulitzer Prize in 2008. Hi, Juno. How's it going, Deborah? Oh, well, you know, it, today is January 20th, and we've just seen Trump be sworn in, so we're, we're in a new era. We certainly are. Uh, <laughs> from my point of view, a rather dark one, but I'm sure, you know. Yeah, yep. A fitting era to read the story that you've chosen today, which is Seven by Edwidge Danticat. And the last time that you were on the podcast, you read a, another story by Edwidge called Water Child, which was published in the magazine a year earlier. Why, why choose seven for today? Well, I've spent the last few years, as I've spent probably my entire adult life, um, meditating on immigration and on immigrant communities, most specifically that generation that comes before the adult generation, um, as much as I've thought about my own immigration as a child. And certainly, um, you know, our national politics have been all about the immigrant as a menacing and dangerous figure for the last few years. And one of the, one of the antidotes for that kind of xenophobia um, have been writers like Edwige Dantekant. And certainly, I've kept Edwige close uh, these last few years, and necessarily so. These have been very trying times for those of us who are interested in the future and the rights of immigrants. And uh, what Edwige writes about and how she writes about it uh, have given me a lot of solace and a lot of inspiration and have added to my courage. Mm-hmm. Now, you and, and Edwidge are, are good friends, and you were actually born less than a month apart on the same island, though not in the same country. Has her writing meant something to you as a, as a writer? You have very different styles, but, but often subjects that overlap. Absolutely. I think of my interest and devotion to Edwidge's work as being almost disconnected from our friendship, though that cannot be true. But her art always exists in my head in a different place. Um, and, uh, you know, it's been a great spur to my own creative efforts. Uh, and I've always enjoyed being in conversation with her work. In fact, uh, there was something I wrote a few years back, which was really in conversation with Edwige's work in a rather emphatic way. What was that? Oh, it was this uh, piece that I wrote uh, called Otra Vida, Otra Vez. Right. And uh, that was a piece that was evolving out of Edwige's first collection of stories. Did you Had you read her when you were working on your first book on, on Drown? Yes. No, of course. Crick uh, Crack was published a year before um, Drown, but some of the stories had already been in circulation 
So I'd been uh, was real real aware that there was this Haitian slash Haitian American writer who was about to launch. And so, of course, I fastened on these tales immediately. Mm-hmm. What is it about the story that you're that you're reading today, Seven, that stands out most for you? Again, I would argue that the majority of what we would call the immigrant experience has not been touched by our literary artists. I think as a country that constantly touts itself as an immigrant nation, as a country who articulates that it is foundationally an immigrant nation, our literary culture has been, I would argue, light on immigrant writing. There's folks who would say that, oh, well, that's not really true, but hmm, given the ubiquity of immigration experience, I would argue that immigrant writing is not ubiquitous uh, in our literary culture. Mm-hmm. With that said, I, what, one of the things that always strikes me about Edwige is that um, she's able to capture what we might call those quotidian moments, those absolute quotidian lives that um, stand in for so much. I think it's easy um, as a young writer or easy as a reader, perhaps, to want more fireworks, to think I would perhaps like a more extreme example. But I, I don't tend to be, you know, I don't tend to turn that way. I find that it fills in some of the largest blanks of that experience, which is that most immigrants, um, you know, that of those ones I know, are everyday people living in extraordinary circumstances. And I think that that's what strikes me always about Edwige's work, is that she sort of understands how folks can cope with these just epic dislocations and how Mm -hmm. they often do. I just find that to be um, illustrative. Mm -hmm. Let's hear our illustration, and we'll talk some more after the story. And now here's Juno Diaz, reading Seven by Edwidge Danticat. Seven. Next month would make it seven years since he'd last seen his wife. Seven, a number he despised but had discovered was a useful marker. There were seven days between paychecks, seven hours, not counting lunch, spent each day at his day job, seven at his night job. Seven was the last number in his age, 37. And now there were seven hours left before his wife was due to arrive. Maybe it would be more, with her having to wait for her luggage, and then make it through the long immigration line and pass customs to look for him in the crowd of welcoming faces on the other side of the sliding doors at JFK. That is, if the flight from Port-au-Prince wasn't delayed, as it often was, or canceled altogether. He shared an apartment in the basement of a two-story house with two other men, Michel and Danny. To prepare for the reunion, he'd cleaned his room, thrown out some cherry-red rayon shirts he knew his wife would hate, and then climbed the splintered steps to the first floor to tell the landlady that his wife was coming. The landlady was heavy-set and plain, almost homely, with deep ridges on her wide forehead. I don't have a problem with your wife coming. She often closed her eyes while speaking, as if to accentuate the pauses between her words. I just hope she's clean. She is clean, he said. 
The kitchen was the only room in the main part of the house he'd ever seen. It was spotless, and the dishes were neatly organized behind glass cabinets. It smelled of pine-scented air freshener. Did you tell the men, she asked. She opened the microwave and removed two small plastic plates of something that vaguely resembled strawberry cheesecake. I told them, he said. He was waiting for her to announce that she would have to charge him extra. She had agreed to rent the room to one person, not two. A man she'd probably taken for a bachelor. I don't know if I can keep this arrangement if everyone's wife starts coming, she said. He could not speak for the other two men. Michelle and Danny had wives too, but he had no idea if or when those wives would be joining them. A woman living down there with three men, the landlady said. Maybe your wife will be uncomfortable. He wanted to tell her that it was not up to her to decide whether or not his wife would be comfortable, but he had been prepared for this too, for some unpleasant remark about his wife. Actually, he was up there as much to give notice that he was looking for an apartment as to announce that his wife was coming. As soon as he found one, he would be moving. Okay, then, she said, opening her silverware drawer. Just remember, you start the month, you pay the whole thing. Thank you very much, madame, he said. As he walked back downstairs, he scolded himself for calling her madame. Why had he acted like a servant who had been dismissed? It was one of those class things from home that he couldn't shake. On the other hand, if he had addressed the woman respectfully, it wasn't because she was so-called upper class or because she spoke French, though never to him, or even because after five years in the same room he was still paying only $350 a month. If he had addressed the woman politely that day, it was because he was making a sacrifice for his wife. After his conversation with the landlady, he decided to have a more thorough one with the men who occupied the other two rooms in the basement. The day before his wife was to arrive, he went into the kitchen to see them. The fact that they were wearing only white, rather sheer, loose boxers as they stumbled around bleary-eyed concerned him. You understand she's a woman, he told them. He wasn't worried that she'd be tempted. They were skin and bones. But if she was still as sensitive as he remembered, their near nakedness might embarrass her. The men understood. If it were my wife, Michelle said, I would feel the same. Danny simply nodded. They had robes, Michelle declared after a while. They would wear them. They didn't have robes. All three men knew this, but Michelle would buy some out of respect for the wife. Michelle, at 40, the oldest of the three, had advised him to pretty up his room, to buy some silk roses, some decorative prints for the walls, no naked girls, and some vanilla incense, which would be more pleasing than the air fresheners the woman upstairs liked so much. Danny told him that he would miss their evenings out together, in the old days, they had often gone dancing at the Rendezvous, which was now the Senegal nightclub, but they hadn't gone much since the place had become famous. Abner Louima was arrested there, then beaten and sodomized at a nearby police station. He told Danny not to mention those nights out again. His wife wasn't to know that he had ever done anything but work his jobs. As a day janitor at Medgar Evers College, and as a night janitor at King's County Hospital. 
and he wasn't going to tell her about those women who had occasionally come home with him in the early evening hours. Those women, most of whom had husbands, boyfriends, fiancés, and lovers in other parts of the world, had never meant much to him anyway. Michel, who had become a lay minister at a small Baptist church near the rendezvous and had never danced there, laughed as he listened. The cock can no longer crow, he said. You might as well give the rest to Jesus. Jesus wouldn't know what to do with what's left of this man, Danny said. Gone were the late-night domino games. Gone were the phone numbers he'd had for the past five years, ever since he'd had a phone. He didn't need other women calling him now. And it was only as he stood in the crowd of people waiting to meet the flights arriving simultaneously from Kingston, Santo Domingo, and Port-au-Prince that he stopped worrying that he might not see any delight or recognition in his wife's face. There, he began to feel some actual joy, even exhilaration, which made him want to leap forward and grab every woman who vaguely resembled the latest pictures she had sent him, all of which he had neatly framed and hung on the walls of his room. They were searching her suitcase. Why were they searching her suitcase? One meager bag, which aside from some gifts for her husband, contained the few things she'd been unable to part with, the things her relatives hadn't nabbed from her, telling her that she could get more, and better, where she was going. She had kept only her undergarments, a nightgown, and two outfits, the green princess dress she was wearing, and a red jumper that she'd gift-wrapped before packing so that no one would take it. People in her neighborhood who had traveled before had told her to gift-wrap everything so it wouldn't be opened at the airport in New York. Now the custom man was tearing her careful wrapping to shreds as he barked questions to her in mangled Creole. Qui salier? He held a package out in front of her before opening it. What was it? She didn't know anymore. She could only guess by the shapes and sizes. He unwrapped all her gifts, the mangoes, sugarcane, avocados, the orange and grapefruit peel preserves, the peanut, cashew, and coconut confections, the coffee beans, which he threw into a green bin decorated with drawings of fruit and vegetables with red lines across them. The only thing that seemed as though it might escape disposal was a small packet of trimmed chicken feathers, which her husband used to enjoy twirling in his ear cavity. In the early days, Soon after he'd left, she had spun the tips of the feathers inside her ear, too, and discovered that from them she could get jouissance, pleasure, and orgasm. She had thought to herself then that maybe the foreign television programs were right. Sex was mostly between the ears. When the customs man came across the small package of feathers, he stared down at it, then looked up at her, letting his eyes linger on her face, Mostly, it seemed to her, on her ears. Obviously, he had seen feathers like these before. Into the trash they went, along with the rest of her offerings. By the time he was done with her luggage, she had little left. The suitcase was so light now that she could walk very quickly as she carried it in her left hand. She followed a man pushing a cart which tipped and swerved under the weight of three large boxes. And suddenly she found herself before a door that slid open by itself, parting like a glass sea. 
and as she was standing there, the door closed again, and when she moved a few steps forward, it opened, and then she saw him. He charged at her and wrapped both of his arms around her, and as he held her, she felt her feet leave the ground. It was when he put her back down that she finally believed that she was somewhere else, on another soil, in another country. He could tell that she was happy that so many of her pictures were displayed on the wall facing his bed. During the ride home, he had nearly crashed the car twice. He wasn't sure why he was driving so fast. They dashed through the small talk, the inventory of friends and family members, and the state of their health. She had no detailed anecdotes about anyone in particular. Some had died and some were still living. He couldn't even remember which. She was bigger than she had been when he left her, what people here might call chubby. It was obvious that she had been to a professional hairdresser because she was elegantly coiffed with her short hair gelled down to her scalp and a fake bun bulging in the back. She smelled good, a mixture of lavender and lime. He had simply wanted to get her home, if home it was, to that room and to reduce the space between them until there was no air for her to breathe that he wasn't breathing too. The drive had reminded him of the one they had taken to their one-night honeymoon at the Ife Hotel when he had begged the uncle who was driving them to go faster because the next morning he would be on a plane for New York. That night, he'd had no idea that it would be seven years before he would see her again. He'd had it all planned. He knew that he couldn't send for her right away since he would be overstaying a tourist visa. But he was going to work hard to find a lawyer and get himself a green card and then send for his wife. The green card had taken six years and nine months. But now she was here with him, staring at the pictures on his wall as though they were of someone else. Do you remember that one? he asked to reassure her. He was pointing at a framed 8 by 12 of her lying on a red mat by a tiny Christmas tree in a photographer's studio. You sent it last Noel. She remembered, she said. It was just that she looked so desperate, as if she were trying to force him to remember her. I never forgot you for an instant, he said. She said that she was thirsty. What do you want to drink? He listed the juices he had purchased from the Cuban grocer down the street, the combinations he was sure she'd be craving, papaya and mango, guava and pineapple, cherry moya and passion fruit. Just a little water, she said, cold. He didn't want to leave her alone while he went to the kitchen. He would have called through the walls for one of the men to get some water if they were not doing such a good job of hiding behind the closed doors of their rooms to give him some privacy. When he came back with the glass, she examined it, as if for dirt, and then gulped it down. It was as though she hadn't drunk anything since the morning he'd got on the plane and left her behind. Do you want more? he asked. She shook her head. It's too bad, he thought, that in Creole, the word for love, renmen, is also the word for like, so that as he told her he loved her, he had to embellish it with phrases that illustrated the degree of that love. He loved her more than there were seconds in the years they had been apart, he babbled. He loved her more than the size of the ocean she had just crossed. To keep himself from saying more insipid things, he jumped on top of her and pinned her down on the bed. 
She was not as timid as she had been on their wedding night. She tugged at his black tie so fiercely that he was sure his neck was bruised. He yanked a few buttons off her dress and threw them aside as she unbuttoned his starched and iron white shirt, and though in the rehearsals in past daydreams he had gently placed a cupped hand over her mouth, he didn't think to do it now. He didn't care that the other men could hear her or him. Only for a moment did he think to feel sorry that it might be years before the others could experience that same thing. He was exhausted when she grabbed the top sheet from the bed, wrapped it around her, and announced that she was going to the bathroom. Let me take you, he said. Non, non, she said. I can find it. He couldn't stand to watch her turn away and disappear. He heard voices in the kitchen, her talking to the men, introducing herself. He bolted right up from the bed when he remembered that all she had on was the sheet. As he raced to the door, he collided with her coming back. There were two men playing dominoes in the kitchen, she told him, dressed in identical pink satin robes. He left early for work the next day, along with the other men, but not before handing her a set of keys and instructing her not to let anyone in. He showed her how to work the stove and how to find all the Haitian stations on the AM-FM dial of his night table radio. She slept late, reliving the night, their laughter after she'd seen the men, who, he explained, had hurried to buy those robes for her benefit. They had made love again and again, forcing themselves to do so more quietly each time. Seven times by his count, once for each year they'd been apart, but fewer by hers. He had assured her that there was no need to be embarrassed. They were married before God and a priest. This was crucial for her to remember. That's why he had seen to it on the night before he left, so that something more judicial and committing than a mere promise would bind them, so that even if their union had become a victim of distance and time, it could not have been easily dissolved. They would have had to sign papers to come apart, write letters, speak on the phone about it. He told her that he didn't want to leave her again, not for one second, but he had asked for the day off and his boss had refused. At least they would have the weekends, Saturdays and Sundays, to do with as they wished, to go dancing, sightseeing, shopping, and apartment hunting. Wouldn't she like to have her own apartment, to make love as much as they wanted and not worry that some men in women's robes had heard them? At noon, the phone rang. It was him. He asked her what she was doing. She lied and told him that she was cooking, making herself something to eat. He asked what. She said eggs, guessing that there must be eggs in the refrigerator. He asked if she was bored. She said no. She was going to listen to the radio and write letters home. When she hung up, she turned on the radio. She scrolled between the stations he had pointed out to her and was glad to hear people speaking Creole. There was music playing, too. Compa, by a group named Top Vice. She switched to a station with a talk show. She sat up to listen as some callers talked about a Haitian-American named Patrick Dorismond, who had been killed. He had been shot by a policeman in a place called Manhattan. She wanted to call her husband back, but he hadn't left a number. Lying back, she raised a sheet over her head and through it listened to the callers, 
each one angrier than the last. When he had come home, he saw that she had used what she had found in the refrigerator and the kitchen cabinets to cook a large meal for all four of them. She insisted that they wait for the other men to drift in before they ate, even though he had only a few hours before he had to leave for his night job. The men complimented her enthusiastically on her cooking, and he could tell that this meal made them feel as though they were part of a family, something they had not experienced in years. They seemed to be happy, eating for pleasure as well as sustenance, chewing more slowly than they ever had before. Usually they ate standing up, Chinese or Jamaican takeout from places down the street. Tonight there was little conversation, beyond praise for the food. The men offered to clean the pots and dishes once they were done, and he suspected that they wanted to lick them before washing them. He and his wife went to the room and lay on their backs on the bed. He explained why he had two jobs. It had been partly to fill the hours away from her, but also partly because he had needed to support both himself here and her in Port-au-Prince. And now he was saving up for an apartment and ultimately a house. She said that she, too, wanted to work. She had finished a secretarial course. Perhaps that would be helpful here. He warned her that, because she didn't speak English, she might have to start as a cook in a restaurant or as a seamstress in a factory. He fell asleep mid-thought. She woke him up at nine o'clock when he was supposed to start work. He rushed to the bathroom to wash his face, came back, and changed his overalls, all the while cursing himself. He was stupid to have overslept, and now he was late. He kissed her goodbye and ran out. He hated being late, being lectured by the night manager, whose favorite reprimand was, there's tons of people like you in this city. Half of them need a job. She spent the whole week inside, worried that she'd get lost if she ventured out alone, that she might not be able to retrace her steps. Her days fell into a routine. She'd wake up and listen to the radio for news of what was happening both here and back home. Somewhere, not far from where she was, people were in the streets marching, protesting Doris Mond's death, their outrage made even greater by the fact that the Doris Mond boy was the American-born son of a well-known singer whose voice they had heard on the radio back in Haiti. No justice, no peace, she chanted while stewing chicken and frying fish. In the afternoons, she wrote letters home. She wrote of the meals that she had made, of the pictures of her on the wall, of the songs and protest chants on the radio. She wrote to family members and to childhood girlfriends who had been so happy that she was finally going to be with her husband, and to newer acquaintances from the secretarial school who had been jealous. She also wrote to a male friend, a neighbor who had come to her house three days after her husband had left to see why she had locked herself inside. He had knocked for so long that she'd had no choice but to open the door. She was still wearing the dress she'd worn to see her husband off. When she collapsed in his arms, he had put a cold compress on her forehead and offered her some water. She had swallowed so much water so quickly that she'd vomited. 
That night he had lain down next to her, and in the dark had told her that this was love, if love there was, having the courage to abandon the present for a future that one could only imagine. He had assured her that her husband loved her. In the afternoons, while she was writing her letters, she would hear someone walking back and forth on the floor above. She took the pacing as well as she waited for the men to come home. She wanted to tell her husband about the neighbor who had slept next to her for those days after he'd left and in whose bed she had spent many nights after that. Only then would she feel that their future would be true. Someone had said that people lie only at the beginning of relationships. The middle is where the truth resides. But there had been no middle for her husband and herself, just a beginning and many dream-rehearsed endings. He had first met his wife during Carnival, in the mountains, in Jacmel. His favorite part of the festivities was the finale on the day before Ash Wednesday, when a crowd of tired revelers would gather on the beach to burn their carnival masks and costumes and feign weeping, symbolically purging themselves of the carousing of the preceding days and nights. She had volunteered to be one of the official weepers, one of those who wailed convincingly as the carnival relics turned to ashes in the bonfire. Papa Carnaval u Ale. Where have you gone, Father Carnival, she had howled, with real tears running down her face. If she could grieve so passionately on demand, he thought, perhaps she could love even more. After the other weepers had left, she stayed behind until the last embers of the bonfire had dimmed. It was impossible to distract her, to make her laugh. She could never fake weeping, she told him. Every time she cried for anything, she cried for everything else that had ever hurt her. He had traveled between Jack Mel and Port-au-Prince while he was waiting for his visa to come through. And when he finally had a travel date, he had asked her to marry him. One afternoon when he came home from work, he found her sitting on the edge of the bed in that small room, staring at the pictures of herself on the opposite wall. She did not move as he kissed the top of her head. He said nothing, simply slipped out of his clothes and lay down on the bed, pressing his face against her back. He did not want to trespass on her secrets. He simply wanted to extinguish the carnival's burning in her head. She was happy when the weekend finally came. Though he slept until noon, she woke up at dawn, rushed to the bathroom before the men could, put on her red jumper and one of his T-shirts, then sat staring down at him on the bed, waiting for his eyes to open. What plan do we have for today, she asked, when they finally did. The plan, he said, was whatever she wanted. She wanted to walk down the street with him and see faces. She wanted to eat something, an apple or a chicken leg, out in the open with the sun beating down on her face. As they were leaving the house, they ran into the woman whose footsteps she had been hearing all week long above her head. The woman smiled coyly and said, Bienvenue. She nodded politely, then pulled her husband away by the hand. They walked down a street filled with people doing their Saturday food shopping at outside stalls stacked with fruits and vegetables. 
he asked if she wanted to take the bus. Where to? Anywhere, he said. From the bus, she counted the frame and row houses, beauty shop signs, church steeples, and gas stations. She pressed her face against the window, and her breath occasionally blocked her view of the street speeding by. She turned back now and then to look at him, sitting next to her. There was still a trace of sleepiness in his eyes. He watched her as though he were trying to put himself in her place, to see it all as if for the first time, but could not. He took her to a park in the middle of Brooklyn, Prospect Park, a vast stretch of land, trees, and trails. They strolled deep into the park until they could see only a few of the surrounding buildings which towered like mountains above the landscape. In all her daydreams, she had never imagined that there would be a place like this here. This immense garden, he told her, was where he came to ponder the passing seasons, lost time, and interminable distances. It was past seven o'clock when they emerged from the park and headed down Parkside Avenue. She had reached for his hand at 5.10 p.m., he had noted, and had not released it since. And now, as they were walking down a dimly lit side street, she kept her eyes upward, looking into the windows of apartments lit by the indigo glow of television screens. When she said she was hungry, they turned onto Flatbush Avenue in search of something to eat. Walking hand-in-hand with her through crowds of strangers made him long for his other favorite piece of carnival theater. A bride and groom, in their most lavish wedding clothing, would wander the streets. Scanning a crowd of revelers, they would pick the most stony-faced person and ask, Would you marry us? Over the course of several days, for variety, they would modify this request. Would you couple us? Would you make us one? Would you tie the noose of love around our necks? The joke was that when the person took the bait and looked closely, he or she might discover that the bride was a man and the groom a woman. The couple's makeup was so skillfully applied that only the most observant could detect this. On the nearly empty bus on the way home, he sat across the aisle from her, not next to her as he had that morning. She pretended to keep her eyes on the night racing past the windows behind him. He was watching her again. This time he seemed to be trying to see her as if for the first time, but could not. She too was thinking of Carnival, of how the year after they'd met, they had dressed as bride and groom looking for someone to marry them. She had disguised herself as the bride and he as the groom, forgoing the traditional puzzle. At the end of the celebrations, she had burned her wedding dress in the bonfire and he had burned his suit. She wished now that they had kept them. They could have walked these foreign streets in them, performing their own carnival. Since she didn't know the language, they wouldn't have to speak or ask any questions of the stony-faced people around them. They could perform their public wedding march in silence. A silence like the one that had come over them now. That was Juno Diaz, reading Seven by Edwidge Danticat. 
The story first appeared in the October 1st, 2001 issue of The New Yorker and was included in her book The Dewbreaker, which was published by Alfred A. Knopf in 2004. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. So do you know, as we just heard, the story ends with this couple on the bus and they're sitting apart from each other in silence. She's pretending not to look at him. He's staring at her as if he's trying to see her through all of these years that have divided them. What do you make of the ending? Do you think it's it's hopeful or is it the opposite? I think that's why it's such a strong ending, because a reader could take it either way and more ways. I think that it's uh, it's explicitly open to multiple readings, and that's what we need most from our literature. I'm... I tend to read things simultaneously, which is to say, I like the idea that it's both positive, negative, you know, and also probably neither, um, mm-hmm. that the future will be the future, and that depending on who we are as readers at any given moment, we'll put our own spin on it. This story, when I read it, first time I read it, I was sort of convinced that things might work out. Um, the next time I read it, I found myself leaning towards that, hmm, you know, this is a tough challenge. These silences, these distances are vaster than we mm-hmm. are prepared for. And I think that's what matters the most is that, you know, these stories have to give us the opportunity, even as readers, to change our minds and to mm-hmm. change, you know, our entire view of the tale. And that's what good fiction does. You know, it's interesting to me as I took a look both at the the version of the story that ran in the magazine and the version that appears in the book in The Dewbreaker. And Edwidge made a slight change in that last line. So in the magazine, the last line is, they could perform their public wedding march in silence, a silence like the one that had come over them now. And in the book, it becomes, they could carry out their public wedding march in silence, a temporary silence, unlike the one that had come over them now. Yeah, well, she needed to shift it because there was, I, I again, this is me fantasizing, but I assume <laughs> it's because of what happens in the rest of the book. In yeah, this case, yeah. you know, the New Yorker ending is for a, a singularity, a story that stands in for itself. Yeah, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. but the book ending, of course, it needs to connect to the drama of this family and the insane revelations to come. Yeah, the book is much less open. I suppose, you know, it's a, they're saying a temporary silence is unlike the one that had come over them now, the implication being that this, the silence between them is permanent. Though you don't know whether 
that means they'll stay together and be silent or whether they'll they'll part. Well, what I think is happening is that in this in the story, the story just as its own separate discrete entity, um, you know, the, everything hinges on this silence. Uh, but the novel has other larger concerns to which the silence becomes sort of secondary. And I think mm-hmm. the what's open about the novel isn't necessarily that silence, but the consequences of the larger, more terrible revelations. Right. I mean, there's what, what the silence in the novel is the silence of, of not uh, addressing what's happened in the past. And I suppose that, that that's also a silence here. You know, the, this, this wife says, you know, unless unless she can talk to him about what she's done while they were apart, they won't have a real marriage. You know, they won't have a true marriage. And there's that silence between them, that they're not talking about those seven years. And how is she going to reconstitute herself in the face of this new presence? Because after all, he is a new presence, um, even though, of course, uh, an earlier version of himself was deeply connected to her back home in Haiti. So I, I, I think that that's really great challenge to any one of us who have immigrated is how do we reconstitute ourselves on this new land? It's just not enough that one endures, that one copes, that one succeeds, but you have to pull yourself together in a very new way. And I think in her mind, she's trying to, you know, to trying to decide that is the way she's going to pull herself together, you know, how is that going to relate to this experience that she had with this other man? Mm-hmm. And how will it relate to the to her husband? Yeah. In a way, you know. Yeah. I mean, immigration is a great. I'm telling you, there's no there's no better way to increase the silences in families <laughs> and the silences between people than immigration. I think mm-hmm. perhaps only war comes close or exceeds it. Yeah. You know, when you look at this man's life, he, he he's living a pretty miserable life. He's cleaning for seven hours. He has a break. He cleans for another seven hours. He has sort of little bits of sleep in between. Was this what he envisioned when he when he left Haiti? Wouldn't he have been better off staying? Well, I mean, I don't know about that. I Again, I was thinking about my own experiences as I was walking over here to have our mm-hmm. chat. And, you know, when I was at college all those years ago, and I was, you know, had a full-time job, rather onerous job, and uh, I was taking classes as well, and I was trying to excel working and being at school and trying to really partake in what we would call that campus life. I had no idea of myself as working really, really hard. Mm-hmm. I just understood that that was what it was and that's what it was. And, you know, I, I didn't have this existential kind of looking back and saying, wow, man, you were a beast. And I, <laughs> I sometimes think of the same thing when I think of my own family members, that if the view of our world is, is, is you know, simply uh, arithmetic, plus or minus, in other words, is one better off or one worse off uh, in this place or that place, that, that would indicate that one has a godlike, omnipotent way to weigh what one place meant and what this other place means. And I just don't think that that's the way the world works. I mean, let me tell you, all of us know that um, you can't begin to understand what life is like in other nations until you live there. 
And I, I would argue that um, really hard mule-like work is often a very minimal price for folks who are looking for something better. Right. What's interesting about this character to me is that he, you know, he's sort of demeaned by the landlady. He's demeaned by his boss. He's doing menial labor, living what, what is just physically an exhausting life. But he does seem to maintain a real sense of his own dignity and his own value. You know, he, he sort of castigates himself for being too respectful with the landlady. <laughs> um, he's not actually broken down by this. No, well, he's not. I thought what I found about him is that um, he's a very even-keeled, even-keeled brother because he's at least very present in who he is and he can have a conversation, be in dialogue with himself about these small social exchanges and these sort of modulations in his life. Mm. It doesn't mm-hmm. just, he's not so beat down that he doesn't notice them or that they trigger some reactive storm in him. I mean, it's, it's interesting for some people, that interaction with his landlady would have been enough for them to be incredibly angry and to, to discharge that on their newly arrived wife. Yeah. And I just thought I, I was, I really admired this cat's dignity and his yeah. resilience. And also, I have to tell you, man, his absolute lack of self-pity. Right. There is a strong culture of representation where often we're in the worst position we could possibly be in. Um, you know, this kind of extreme self-victimization narrative that often appears um, in confessional writings and even in the larger popular culture. And this cat belongs to none of that. He doesn't see himself as, you know, particularly afflicted. In fact, uh, all of these kinds of indignities of his life, he seems to take them on in a way that speak to uh, a greater sense of himself and what life means. And that's not to say that, um, you know, that this is some happy-go-lucky, you know, Pollyanna-type figure. I just think that there's a... there's a very, I don't know, there's an admirable strength to this young man and uh, to this young woman in the story that um, allows the story to begin to achieve uh, an epic parameter. Mm-hmm. At the same time, there's, you know, it, it it deals with these details that seem very, you know, domestic and, and quotidian, as you were saying before. Just these roommates in their, in their pink satin bathrobes and the, what's in the fridge and what she's cooking and so on. At the same time, we have this background where we hear about Abner Louima or the killing of Patrick Dorismund and this sense that sort of the, the outside world in this community is, is not a safe one for Haitian men. Why do you think Edwidge sort of threads that through? Well, because I would argue that the, the secret title of this story is Honeymoon. Um, they're on their honeymoon. <laughs> this, is, this is a honeymoon period. All is quiescent. They're ensconced in this sort of sacred intimacy with each other. And yet the world outside doesn't stop being the world outside. You know, slowly as you see this uh, story unfold, they're beginning to resume and they're beginning with part in this part of the wife. She's beginning to connect to the larger community. And what's waiting for them and what this man has been aware of is that there's a lot of nonsense out here, a lot of anti-immigrant nonsense, a lot of anti-Haitian nonsense, a lot of brutality, uh, that this, you know, this isn't just paradise. Um, and um, I think Edwige was able to render both 
this very, very quiet moment before all comes crashing down or before all resumes. And also the reminder that the world outside and all of its evils is relentless and omnipresent. Yeah. You know, it's inter- I just was thinking as you were talking that the story takes place over seven days. There's another seven there. You know, she arrives on what's a weekend, but he's got to go to work the next day. And then we end on the weekend. And since, you know, th- that has been a one week of just trying to overcome this distance and be together again in this contained space, and now they're going to start moving outward. Yeah, the the moment where they're sitting across the aisle from each other on the bus is the realization. For me, it's sort of symbolic of the fact that, in, you know, for the next bunch of years when they're both working and running around their days, rare will be the periods where they'll be this close. And mostly they're going to be sitting across the aisle from each other on the bus. Right. And then you also have the image of the carnival bride and groom of them in their costumes and the woman sort of wishing they could put those costumes on again. It's an interesting thought, you know. I wasn't quite sure how to interpret it, whether whether we're supposed to think their marriage is maybe just kind of a costume because they've forgotten the reality of it or whether whether it's just nostalgia for a time when they, they knew each other well and were in love. What do you think of that, of that image? Home. Mm-hmm. I think home is vast. Yeah. And I think that home is very near to the immigrant. And when you're fumbling around and casting around for uh, on, on what solid ground to put your feet in this new world, often home is what you draw upon. And, I mean... Here we have this imagination of this time of celebration, of this time when uh, the rules are temporarily suspended. I mean, what is these seven days between them in Brooklyn but a quiet carnival? Much more fraught, uh, much much less exultant. And, you know, I I can understand why, um, you know, why one would recall this period when everything was still a game and there was, you know, this sort of community that held you up. I could imagine that that would be um, sort of attractive because now the game is over and here are the consequences. Um, But, you know, I always think that uh, part of, uh, again, this is just me, is that, you know, this is part of that whole assembly process. What are we bringing from home? What What is going to help hold us together here. And certainly we see the, the beginnings of that for this young woman. This moment is in some ways the keystone to the edifice of herself that she's going to need to build here in this new world. It's interesting that in that original carnival, she spent the whole time crying, <laughs> you know, the, the sort of festive occasion and, and, and crying sincerely because she didn't know any other way to do it. Yeah, well, and the the passion of it all. Yeah. I mean, again, it's, uh, you know, I, they always say the old folks from the world to which I come always say that uh, there are many intimations, and often we find ourselves playing out the future without even knowing it. <laughs> you were talking about this as an immigrant story, and I wonder, do you think it's specifically a Haitian immigrant story, or could this be almost any couple coming from anywhere? trying to make their way here. Uh, but I, I think that that's, again, that's just one of the 
the standard functions of the literary, which is it is simultaneously particular and universal. Mm -hmm. Any story done well is going to be about very much about whaling and very much about the human condition. (laughs) And any story about Haitian immigration, any well-done story about a, a, a Haitian couple dealing with the distances of immigration will be specifically about that and specifically about any couple who have had to travel and who have been separated for a long time. It is that secret power of literature that keeps me awake at night, both grateful and perplexed. <laughs> Do you think, um, I mean, obviously this is, this is literature as, as art, this story and, and some of the others you're talking about also have a purpose as a kind of um, sociology or documentary. You know, you, th- you think of those like Jacob Rees tenement photographs, which do something of what Ed Reach is doing here. Well, I mean, I just think that given the utter erasure and how much energy we spend maligning immigrants and demonizing them... Uh, Just the very fact that you have a writer who is writing about folks as human beings, um, I think this story and this kind of writing performs a tremendous social, cultural, political correction. I think, again, like characters like these, living lives like these, when set against this hysterical anti-immigrant xenophobic atmosphere we're in, it feels like the writer is being intentionally revolutionary to present people of color, to present women of color, to present immigrants, to present poor people as human beings in a culture like ours is revolutionary. And human beings with dignity. Yeah, certainly. This story occupies an interesting spot in my memory um, because I was trying to close it with Edwidge, uh, you know, send it to press on September 11th, 2001. And that was the day that this story was supposed to go to press. And for some reason, the towers were coming down and it seemed important to stick to deadlines. Phone lines were down. And I ended up, you know, at some point talking to Edwidge that day and she was worrying about a friend who I, I'm not sure if the friend worked in or near the trade center but and of course we didn't end up running fiction in that issue and it (laughs) I could have left her alone but it's something about this story and that date and everything really that's happened since are kind of linked for me it seems sort of appropriate to be talking about it today yeah again as we as we age we (laughs) we begin to get a sense of time these characters have a very strong sense of time too Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um periodicity and that kind of thinking, yeah, being able to look at your life not just as this uh, tangled weave that it's difficult to disaggregate, but seeing it as separate ages. Uh, I think at moments like uh, September 11th and moments like this election, I think they certainly, for those of us who've lived them and look back, feel like an inflection point, feel like the opening and closing of something. And, uh, yeah, I, I can only imagine that that's how that story rings uh, for <laughs> someone who encountered it like we did um, shortly after 9-11. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you so much, Juno. No, thank you, Deborah. 
Edwidge Danticat is the author of a dozen books, including the novels The Farming of Bones and Claire of the Sea Light, the story collection Crick Crack, and the memoir Brother, I'm Dying. She was named a MacArthur Fellow in 2009. Juno Diaz's most recent story collection, This Is How You Lose Her, a National Book Award finalist, came out in 2012. He's been publishing in The New Yorker since 1995, and he and Danticat were both included in The New Yorker's 20 Under 40 fiction issue in 1999. You can download more than 100 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast in the iTunes Store. You can download the weekly audio edition of the New Yorker through iTunes or audible.com. On the Writer's Voice Podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. If you've been listening to the Fiction Podcast on your phone, you might want to read the New Yorker magazine that way too. You can do that with the New Yorker Today app. Download it from iTunes, or you can find it at newyorker.com slash today. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page, or rate and review us on iTunes. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff of newyorker.com. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.